Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we all get to know a little bit more, a lot more in fact, about the newest member of the Tennis TV and ATP Tennis Radio commentary team. That is none other than recent world number 21, Gilles Muller, who hung up his rackets at the end of this year's US Open and has since been enjoying some long overdue family time and also putting in his maiden performance as part of our team at the NITO ATP Finals. And it's at London's O2 that we hear from Gilles. First, in one of the session breaks, some of our other commentators, including Naomi Cavaday and Miles McLagan, put him on the spot. I also chip in with a question or two, but first of all, Gigi Salmon started by asking Gilles simply how he's been enjoying life as a non-tennis professional. It's been very nice, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> There's a big smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really. It's a lot, a lot of people. A lot of people ask me this, but um, yeah, the last few months were really tough. I mean, uh, I was going through through an injury, and and uh, so yeah, that moment when you're not sure if if you keep going or if you're stopping or not. But uh, when I made that decision, it really felt right. And and since I stopped, I haven't touched a racket at I, all. At all. I played my last match at the U.S. Open, and and and. I brought back home my bag, and it's in in the basement the same way where when it when it arrived. I haven't opened it. Really? Yes. There yes. hasn't been the urge to pick up the racket. Just I, re, that's amazing. It is. <laughs> but it does show that it was the right decision and it was the right time. Definitely, yeah, it was the right time. I mean, I have also two boys, and um, the last few years were tough on them because I was I was away a lot. I was missing a lot of things, and um, at certain times during the year, my 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 my, my oldest one, he was. Uh, just telling me sometimes, Daddy, can you just lose and come home now? And <laughs> that's when I, I felt, okay, maybe the time is coming soon, but I was having a lot of success. I was playing well, I was feeling well, and, and then I, th I told myself that as soon as something is coming up, when I'm not having fun anymore, when I'm not enjoying it anymore, uh, I'm going to stop because there's no point in continuing something if, if you're not having fun and, 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 and you're kind of hurting your, your, your kids. So... Uh, I decided to that it was the right time now because I was not enjoying it the last few months because I was just it was a struggle with my body and and uh, there was no point in, in in keep going. Don't you love the honesty of children? Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just lose and come home? <laughs> now, in terms of injury eyes, it's it's really interesting because we spent a lot of this year talking about Novak Djokovic's elbow, something that you know all too well about. Yeah, I had exactly the same thing, and um, so five years ago I had also an injury with my elbow, and uh, I mean. Elbow for a tennis player is, is kind of like uh, his best piece, if you, if you put it that way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you lose confidence because you feel like every time you hit a ball, if it's a serve or a forehand or whatever, you feel that there's something. So you're kind of like starting to, it's like a whole process in, in, your, in your head. You're kind of losing that confidence because you're not able to just hit the ball anymore. And, and sometimes even trying to change your techniques because you're feeling maybe if I hit the ball this way it hurts a little bit less so you're doing different things and you're totally losing focus on what you're doing well and I think that's what happened to Novak as well I think you could see when he was starting the year again he was not very confident with his serve with his strokes and I think once the pain is gone once you start feeling comfortable again the confidence is coming back and that's what we saw with Novak I mean in the beginning he was struggling a little bit but then the last six months he was just playing 
unbelievable. He's back to the to the player he was uh, two years ago, and and it's it's it makes me very happy to see that because he's a great player and. Uh, is good for tennis. Is it a difficult injury to solve? Is it difficult to get rid of that pain? Depends on what you have exactly, but yes, I think it's very, very difficult because uh, the most difficult thing when, when, you, when you have an injury is when it, when it arrives in your head. When it's, when it's, in the beginning, you feel something, you say, oh, maybe it's just this or maybe it's just that, but then you go see a doctor and then, then you do a, 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 an, an MRI and then you see what you have exactly. Then it's, then it's there. Then you say, oh, yeah, I really have something. So sometimes I... I even when I feel a little bit something, I'm not going to the doctor straight away because I don't want him to tell me that I have this and this and that. So then it's in your head and then it's tough. But uh, yeah, I mean, if it's there, you need to do everything possible to, to, uh, to get rid of it. I mean, uh, I'm sure Novak uh, had seen many doctors, many physios, and, and I'm sure he's, he's well now. You can see it on the court now. So it's perfect now. You've had great success in your career. You, do you live in, in Luxembourg? Or I do. You I do. do. Yeah, yeah. Can you walk the streets of, of Luxembourg or do you get mobbed? <laughs> No, I can walk the streets. I can walk. The no, there's not a problem. We're not very, let's put it that way, fanatic in, in Luxembourg with, with sportsmen or sportswomen. <laughs> but how was your success received back home? Was there a lot of coverage? Where people do a lot of talking about it? What's it like in terms of a country and its and its tennis or its sports following? I have to say, over the last ten years, we've had uh, a, f a few guys who did very well in, in in sport. We have we've had the Schleck brothers in in cycling that did very well. That was. The first time that there was really like something in Luxembourg where you could see like all the people were behind it, and and that was, I think, kind of the start to it. And and then uh, then I came in the last few years, and and um, it was funny because uh, in Luxembourg they, they there was a new government a couple of years ago, and they decided to um, to promote the country, and 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 actually they, they made a very good decision. They they, they thought that the the athletes could help to do that. So, um, Brilliant. And, and then when we started that campaign, that was when I was playing really well and so I kind of helped to do that and, and uh, it was a big success and, and uh, I hope they, they keep going like this because I think we have a lot of talent in Luxembourg in, in different sports, but uh, I think our biggest problem is to believe in ourselves. We always kind of hide behind the fact that we're a small country and, and, and that there's not many sportsmen that can do it and, and it's very hard to get there, which it, which it is. but. Uh, I think the most important thing is to believe in yourself, and I think we're, we have a big lag in that. Yeah, it's incredible. It comes down to that belief. Naomi Cavaday has joined. That's something we, Naomi, have spoken a lot about on air and off air, having that belief. You work a lot with junior players. Is it? Do they lack belief? Is that a little bit of a problem in this country? Is it completely opposite? Yeah, they can, they can do. I think um, something that I find a lot with the British culture, with our juniors, and one of the biggest struggles we have is that we don't uh, particularly um, encourage confident kids. We like kids to be quite quiet and quite perfect. And a kid that says, I'm going to be an amazing tennis player at 10 years old is kind of told to pipe down and not. It, it's, I don't know, I mean, I was just always told, but you were bored if it doesn't work out. What if it doesn't? I was never told, okay, great, let's go for it at all. It just does, it doesn't happen like that in this country. And I, I think for, for Britain, I think within the system, we're always comparing against uh, places like um, the States or Australia, uh, particularly um, in terms of the culture. But I think they, they love confident kids in both of those countries. You know, you give a kid a microphone and they're off. They'll, they, will do, they'll, they will run an interview with Gilles for <laughs> half an hour and they don't, you know, whereas our kids, we, they tend to be a little bit more shy. So it's a, it's a big problem. For me, it's the biggest problem that faces British tennis with our kids because it's really hard to drag that out. It's much easier to rein in uh, too much confidence, maybe a little bit of arrogance. Now, Gilles is here and he's been doing some commentary with Tennis TV, mentioned that he'd been working on the 
Nishikori match today. You've been in commentary for a while now. How, was it something you wanted to do when you hung up the racket? And can you give Gilles some, some tips to be a top commentator? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm top. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think it's it's the the, be, the biggest thing for me after I stopped playing was to get a bit more perspective and be really proud of what you've what I'd achieved because once you, when you're in it you're always kind of wanting more and more and more and my career came to a, an end prematurely um, but it's really nice to kind of sit and look at courts and when I work at on centre court at Wimbledon I kind of think my god I did that I walked out and I did that and I played there and I, whatever it might be um, and so it is nice to kind of gain a bit of perspective so you can kind of really enjoy it. It's a long career post a tennis career Gilles isn't it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> you would think so. Because the, the tennis career, I know we have players playing like Mike Bryan into their 40s now, but then you have to sort of sit down and think, what do I do now? For you, it was the right time, it was the right decision, but did you think, yeah, I'd like to do commentary, do you want to go into coaching? Is there something else that excites you post-tennis? Um, to be honest, coaching is something for the moment I decided not to do. Because you haven't picked up your rackets. Yes. <laughs> No, but also I think coaching involves right away a lot of traveling again. And, and I think um, the reason why I stopped was because of traveling, because I was traveling too much. So I didn't want to basically stop my tennis career and then right away start my coaching career. I'm not saying I'm not going to do it maybe in a couple of years, who knows. But for the moment, um, for me, the most important thing was to, to, to be home, be home with the family, being there for my kids, for my wife. And, and uh, I mean, they, they did a lot of sacrifice over the last few, uh, few years. So I, I wanted to kind of be there for them now because they, they were there for me and it's kind of like a payback time. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, I, I don't know if you were watching this tournament, maybe you were working on it, but I, I said to Gilles when we spoke yesterday, one of my favourite moments when he won the title in, in Sydney and then the crowd look up to his family, his boys were, and they were both on sort of iPads looking down. You're like, no, it's daddy's moment. <laughs> and daddy was so excited and they were like, no, I've just got to do that. I've just, because you know, young children, you've got to keep them occupied, but it was such a lovely moment. But it's so nice to have somebody in your box to look to because so often when you're playing and traveling, it, sometimes you can get amazing wins in your career and there aren't really many people in your box. You might just have your coach or maybe no one at all, maybe just a fellow player. So, I mean, I remember listening to, to people say that they had kind of their biggest wins be beating Serena or something and say so they looked at their box and oh no no one was there <laughs> it's actually quite was your box always full especially at the big tournaments no not always kind of the same things you just said like mm. most of the time I was traveling by myself with a coach and and so um, I mean actually to win my first title and my having my boys and my, my wife there was perfect moment it was worth the while <laughs> yeah absolutely we've just seen Dante Bettini walk past is he still avoiding K because he's just, he's, just he's just walked around the outside. There was a little smile towards Gilles as he, as he went past. And, and walking the other direction, Judy might see, Gilles, this is why we stand here, because this is the people you see. Yeah, exactly, yeah. See? And we've got the trophy. We have the trophy. Oh, yeah. It's having a photo shoot on its own. Oh, yeah, true. We could just go and join. Should we get, do you want to go and stand we, in front of the We can go and lift it. Should we go and lift it? <laughs> <laughs> you go and lift it. We'll, we'll take photos <laughs> and commentate on the lifting of the trophy. That'll be fantastic. I think, Seb, you've got to come and help us here. We've, we've gone a little bit mad courtside. Um, you've you've met, spent some time with Gilles before, Seb. Yeah, I have. I've, I've interviewed Gilles. Gilles, I don't know whether you remember or not, but we spoke a couple of times for ATP Tennis Radio. The first time was in Madrid last year. 
and um, it was on your birthday. I and remember that. There yeah. was a bit of a ruse that you know you had to do this interview for radio, but in actual fact, what the ATP guys had done was arranged for you to have a cake. So there was everyone's you know <laughs> saying happy birthday, and you were very embarrassed and received your cake, and it I was, was very nice. And then you got up to go, and and Nicola Arzani from from ATP said, no, 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 you, you've got the interview as well. It's not just the cake. So then we spoke, I, and I that was nice. That. But one of the things you said at the time was about family and the fact that you were on your own, you know, for your birthday or whatever. And then we spoke in Monte Carlo earlier this year mm -hmm. and your family was there, you know. Yeah, and, exactly, and I don't yeah. know whether you remember, but you, obviously your, your sponsor was Sergio Tacchini and your boys had just been given beautiful oh, yeah, yeah. new white Sergio Tacchini yes, t-shirts and chocolate ice cream. <laughs> I remember that, and yes. And <laughs> it wasn't, I, I, I was wasn't quite pretty. distracted because as a dad myself, I was just doing the interview sort of cringing, thinking, how long is it? before those t-shirts are no longer pristine white. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It was a very funny, very funny moment. <laughs> I was, when you, when you retired at the US Open, you, you were quoted as saying, maybe in a few months I'll realize what I've accomplished. Um, I was just wondering, obviously we are a few months on now. Have you, has it sort of sunk in everything that you accomplished in your career? Have you had time yet, do you think, to really think, wow, you know, that was, it was a good career? Um, to be honest, not really. I mean, this is the first time that I'm actually coming back to a tournament and um, right now I'm feeling, wow, I, I did play on these kind of courts and, and uh, I was there and I, I did that. But um, to be honest, I haven't had time to, to reflect on everything. I was actually very busy, surprisingly. I thought I was going to have more time to for everything, but uh, <laughs> even in my retirement, I, I was very busy. But um, I think it's going to come. I think... Um, Maybe when I when I see the Australian Open next year on TV and and uh, I, I see the guys going out again because I have had time where where I was injured so that back in yeah I, I was home for for two or three months in a row and um, but um, let's see how it is when it's after six seven eight months and and I'll see the guys in Australia in, in, in at the French Open maybe then I, I realize what what I've achieved. Because you had such a lot of success in the last year of your career, really, didn't you? Relative in terms of titles and, and things. And obviously everyone remembers the great match with, with Rafa at Wimbledon. Did that make it easier to retire in a way or did it make it harder? It made it harder, to be honest, because um, my injury started uh, last year after the Australian Open, uh, after the US Open. And uh, um, I think if... if if I didn't have that ranking back then and I didn't have a, an opportunity to play the, the big tournaments this year again, I might have stopped already there because uh, I just didn't want to stop at that ranking at, at that moment. So um, I could have stopped maybe a little bit earlier if I, if I didn't have, have had that success uh, the year before. The one moment, if I could just leave you with one moment from your tennis career that you could keep and everything else would be forgotten, is there one that stands out above the rest? It could be a match, it doesn't have to be a title. You know what? It wasn't even a match. It was um, my first encounter with uh, Andre Agassi. I mean, he was my, my childhood hero when, when I was watching uh, tennis as a kid. I was always cheering for him. And then the first time I played him was uh, 2004 in Washington in the semifinals. And uh, that moment when, when we stepped out to the court, just before we stepped out to the court, actually, 
he came up to me and he said, hi, I'm Andre. And I was just there and I couldn't say a word, just shaking <laughs> his hand. And, and that, was the mo that was one of the most special moments that, that, that I had in my career, for sure. You were like, I know. Yeah, I know who you are. How did that match go, can I ask? I actually beat him. Did you? I did, yeah, yeah, that was, that was amazing, yeah. So your idol, someone yeah. you'd wanted to face, and then you go and beat him. You yeah. didn't apologise at the end, did I you? I didn't, no. You didn't, you took it. I you took it, definitely, you, but I didn't know what to tell him at, at the end of the match. I was just, same, same thing, I was just shaking hands and just watching and couldn't, couldn't say a word. Really? Yeah, yeah it was very, very must, emotional. He, they said, what did you make of Jumani? He doesn't say a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Smiles. We, we talked a couple of times after that. <laughs> Smiles, but it doesn't say a lot. We're now in darkness. I think it's partly because of the photo shoot that's taking place with the trophy that we haven't crashed yet, threatening to do so. But that's why the lights have, have gone down. We've been joined by Miles McLaggen. Miles, would you like to have a word with Gilles? Uh, sure, thank you. <laughs> um, I said earlier, this would be my, my nightmare playing against this kind of guy, the big lefty serve. Did you feel that against some players when you played, that they're just... I, I felt it because not everyone wanted to practice with me. <laughs> Every time I asked a couple of guys to practice, I said, ah, I don't want to hit with a lefty. So I kind of knew that um, also in a match that would be a big advantage because actually players don't like it. It's true, you're right. Because some do, for example, like Andy practiced with Jamie a lot and then Jonas Bjorkman, he, his, his father was a lefty, so he's used to it all the time. But I'm sure you'd be modest about it. But also with that, that weapon, sometimes you must, you must feel like you have a chance in any match and sometimes just feel like invincible just about. Yeah, that's true. I mean... Yeah, to have a good serve and, and to be a lefty, you definitely, it, it's a big advantage. And, and so I, I, every time I stepped out for a match, I, I was thinking I have a chance to win it. I was never thinking, uh, well, this is going to be impossible to win. I always thought like, OK, if I get my serve going, worst case, I, I get to a tiebreak. And in a tiebreak, you never know what's happening. I mean, you can win a lucky point here and there, and then you can win a tiebreak, and then you have a big chance to win that match. So that's, that's how I felt every time I stepped out there. Cool, must be nice. Huh? <laughs> and what, about, what about you playing a lefty? Did, it, did, you, did you mind that? Not really, to be honest. Uh, I didn't look at my stats, but I think I, I don't have bad stats against, against lefties. Um, I think it's all, also, you need to adapt. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you had the, the elbow injury and you had a little timeout. And it, it seemed to me, I know you worked alongside our friend uh, Jamie, but it seemed that you, you almost came back with much more clarity in your game style. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is that true? Is almost like the timeout sometimes a benefit to think about how you're going to play? I think it was a timeout, but it was also Jamie who helped me a lot. I mean, Jamie was a player who always came a lot to the net, played a lot of serve and volley. Because and, and, um... you started out playing a bit of doubles with him, didn't you? Did yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, he, I think he taught me a lot about positioning because yeah. uh, many times play, uh, people would tell me you need to go to the net, you need to play serve and volley, but I wasn't feeling comfortable. And, and Jamie helped me a lot to, uh, with positioning at the net and, and playing that first volley, the spots where I need to play the first volley, and, and, and that helped me a lot. And I felt much more confident after that. And, and since then I've, I've developed that style and it was working well. And, and did, it, did it snap in pretty quickly or you still feel like you're learning shot selection even up at the net? And I think you, you need time. I think it's, it's, it's difficult. You, you need to, to adapt to... to um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing was that in practice it was working well, but then in matches you kind of like feel more pressure so you don't want to do it. So the, the thing was to, to push yourself to do it in matches as well and maybe being okay with it to, to lose a few matches because you're doing it but um, after a while it was it was it was great but do, do you think that mentality it's it's easier to accept that when you're a bit older probably right it's tough when you're young to accept the totally. long-term game 100 percent. yeah yeah i think when you're older and you, you you can see also that it's working well in practice and and that you can do some damage i, I think uh, 
yeah, as, 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 a, as a kid, you're always thinking short term, you want to win matches, but uh, when you get older, you're feeling maybe there's a good game. And uh, this is me actually looking for tips because <laughs> I, I, I wondered I, about all these questions and where it's going. Uh, the test afters. But it is interesting because I, I did it, and, and I think you're sort of saying you did it, but is there a way you think that you could have learned those? that someone could have convinced you that earlier on, or is it just waiting for the right time to accept the information? That's a very good question. I don't know. I think at my very, when I was very young, I think I wouldn't have accepted it because I was, I was let's put it that way, I was doing fine. I was, I was winning matches this way. But um, I think it would have been nice to, to, to have someone explain this to me and, and, and teach, me, uh, teach me this way of playing a couple of years early for sure, yeah, yeah. I think Miles might have got all the information he needed from you, Gilles. I think he's he's opened his iPad, he's ticked off all his... He might be playing serving volley now in his next matches. <laughs> Will you be? N not behind a sort of 75 mile an hour first serve, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> Seb? Yeah, I, I was interested to hear Gilles talk about the fact that there were players who didn't want to practice with him because he was a lefty. Um, and I'm, I don't know whether you can hear in the background, I, I'm, I'm watching Marcello Mello practice with Lucas Kubot and you mentioned that you're watching Bruno Suarez with Jamie Murray and these guys don't really have much of a choice they they practice with each other all the time Gilles was there someone that you like to practice with either because you had a good workout with them or because you just simply got on with them off the court I, I love for example to practice with uh, Marcus Bagdadis because he was a good friend I know him for a long time and it was always nice being with him on the court he's a very loose guy we had a lot of fun always and and uh, I always enjoyed those moments. I mean, he was the guy probably that I practiced the most with in my career. <laughs> I just had another question as well, relating to the to the commentary, um, which I, I haven't been able to, to hear your, your TV commentary, but do, do you have a, sort of an analytical mind, do you think, naturally? And do you think you could you could use that to, to help you in your commentary? Well, I, I think I, I do have it, but... Um, I learned now that it's not so easy to do it. Uh, to be honest, I, I got more tight uh, doing the comment in, in the commentary box than, than before a tennis match. So <laughs> I need to, to 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 get to loosen up a little bit. And, and uh, but I think I'll be fine. Everyone keeps telling me that uh, the first time it's normal that you're a little bit nervous, but um, I'll be fine. So I hope for the best. You're joining us on radio this evening. The difficulty is in TV. It's like don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Radio. It's keep talking, Gilles. Just keep <laughs> talking. So they're they're very different skills. Were you big on? stats and when you were practicing and playing maybe it's something that developed later and you get looking at stats looking at the numbers and, and putting that into your game to try and improve or not really um me myself i was not looking at them but i always uh, had my coach look at those things because i think it's very important to, to to have an idea on what you did on the court and what you didn't do well on the court and um so yeah my coach were looking at that and and then we were talking about it but um i kind of wanted to be quiet not 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 uh, talk about tennis. Not not do too many things about tennis. Once I get out of the club, so uh, I decided not to to look at them when I was back in my hotel room and, and stuff like this. What did you like doing to take your mind off tennis? Maybe when when you're travelling, so the options are limited. But would you go out and about and see the sights, or was it something you did? Not really. No, I was. I just love to be. I mean, even if you have a short day in, in tennis, it's still a long day. You, you leave like the hotel room at maybe eight o'clock in the morning and you come back at four and then you only had one practice, but you did treatment and all these kind of things. So when I came back to the hotel, I always liked to have like one or two hours where I would just relax and, and watch a movie or read a book or something like that just to get your, your mind off of tennis. But are you good? And were you good at switching off? No. Really? <laughs> it was tough. At certain, at certain points, it was very tough because you... You always were thinking about something, what 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 went wrong in, in practice, what what you did well, but um, 
It was not easy for me. So I mean, I I I work with a sports psychologist for a long time, or the latter part of your career, or um, especially in the later part of my career. And how helpful did you find it? Very helpful. And if I have one regret, it's that I didn't start earlier to to work with a sports psychologist. What difference do you feel they made for you personally? Oh, I think I kind of like um, accepted myself of who I was, and and not trying to to uh, be be different i just accepted that i was this type of player this type of person and that uh, everyone has uh, bad sides and good sides but just go along with it it's interesting hearing Gilles talking about using a sports psychologist especially towards the end of wishes he'd used it sooner as a coach without something you believed in and wanted to bring it because it feels like it's just become fashionable to talk about in in recent times I, I wish I had. I think it's. I think it's tough to find a really good one, actually. And 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 sometimes what I was wary of. I think someone who doesn't quite understand the sport it can do a lot of damage as well. Um, but I, I think you know we we have someone taking care of our bodies, our diets. Well, not us, but them <laughs> <laughs> taking care of body in a long time. <laughs> but you know your your technique. Why why not the most powerful muscle in, in your body? But. Uh, yeah, so if, so if you can challenge, I think, you know, we saw Kevin Anderson earlier. I think most players actually now have some kind of contact, right? I think so, yeah, yeah. I think it's such a big part now. Um, it's something that's so important in matches. I mean, you spend so much time with yourself out there, so there's uh, many voices in your head, many negative voices, and, and you need to try to eliminate those. And, and um, you, I think everyone needs help. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's 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 a good thing when when you when you're open to 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 accept that you have to work on that. Yeah, I think sometimes the what you're saying to yourself and your monologue in the matches. I mean, it. I mean, it can get nasty. You can get really. I mean, these are things you would never say to anyone ever. Let alone. I mean, you're, you're ultimately you're trying to coach yourself out there because you don't have access to a coach, and uh, and you and you, you bring in so many negative thoughts. And uh, and I, whenever I work with juniors, I always I, I I prep the parents and prep the kids, but I keep a list of things that they, I've heard them say to themselves in matches, like oh my forehand's rubbish and you know just give up tennis and whatever and I I tell them like right okay so I'm gonna now tell you all of the things you've been telling yourself all year for a session and I stand behind them and I'm kind of hurling this abuse at them and I, I have okayed it with everyone everyone knows what's going on and they last about two minutes before they go all right I'm trying my best and you think you the, the amount the barrage you put yourself under is, is quite phenomenal. But I agree with Mars in terms of finding a, the right sort of sports psychologist. I mean, the first few sports psychologists I worked with, I mean, this is 15 years ago, um, they'd say, oh, you get nervous of 4-1 up. Pretend you're 4-1 down. Yeah. And I'm like, well... That's I, too easy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I have an umpire shouting the score. I have a jumbotron scoreboard around as well. <laughs> it's really tough. I mean, it's really tough to lie to myself. So it can be really difficult. Um, but, I mean, the sports psych side of things is is uh yeah i mean it has taken off definitely in the last kind of 10 15 years but i've got i've got one question for you because you're I mean, you're so fresh off the tour we've had much discussion this week and through the past few months uh, about novak djokovic because it's all kind of about novak djokovic at the moment um are there any tactics against him is there anything like because when I watch Federer play at his best, I still feel like there are a couple of things you can hold on to as an opponent. You can try and tuck him up under the feet, jam him on the backhand. You know you're going to get a lot of backhand slides. There are some things that even when he's playing a blinder, 
you can still have a focus, even if you don't really think it's going to work that well, or you can't do it to a high enough level. And the same with Nadal as well, um, certain things that he doesn't like. But with Djokovic, as we saw with Isner last night playing against him, they just kind of look at their box and think, they, they just seem like they're completely floundering, as in, I don't feel like anyone's ever come up with an answer for Djokovic's game. And I just wondered, are there any tactics? If there are, please share. <laughs> please share with the players as well. <laughs> give, give them a hand. <laughs> well, I, pl I played them once and I, I thought I really played one of my best matches ever. And I still lost in straight sets at the Australian Open. And um, to be honest, it's really tough. He's, he's, he, he does everything so well. I mean, the only thing that maybe if you have to pick something out is, is his volleys. But if he doesn't come to the net, he's not hitting any, hitting any volleys. Yeah, so. Maybe the smash. <laughs> maybe the smash, yeah. <laughs> well, that's but, gonna happen, what, twice a match, maybe? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I always felt like, well, when you play any of those top guys, um, even though like a guy like Andy or Novak, they're, they're, they're so good at counter-attacking, I think, I think nobody likes to, to hit passing shots all the time and, and uh, feel the pressure that someone is coming to the net. I think if a guy like Kevin Anderson, like today, with his powerful serve, with his powerful game, and he's coming to the net, he's got this long arm, so he's covering basically the whole court. I think nobody likes to hit passing shots for an hour and a half straight or two hours straight, so I think mm. this is kind of maybe the only way you're going to get to them when, when you're really pushing them all the time and, and, and yeah, putting them on the edge. I love this. Add in be a lefty, so basically the tactic is be Jill Muller yeah. and you, <laughs> you've got a chance. You're going to get your rackets. <laughs> we need you. Get them out of the basement. <laughs> we, need, we need that racket bag open. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. Jill, it's been an absolute pleasure. You see, the whole team has been here and asking you questions, but we thought it'd be nice to give you a break before later because you're going to be joining Miles and myself for the Roger Federer Dominic team match. Federer team, a match in which the Swiss star would delight his legion of fans and come through with ease, as did Gilles in his radio commentary debut, it must be said, and no sooner had he put the microphone down, he was put back on the spot by Peter Mercato, Richard Connolly and Naomi. And far from talking shop for too long, they were more interested in finding out all about his home country, Smaller than the smallest of the US states, Rhode Island, but alive with mountain ranges, rivers, lakes and the lowest unemployment rate in Europe. That is, of course, Luxembourg, Peter Mercato. Shield Muller, welcome back. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Um, we've got a whole bunch of questions to throw at you. It looks like Richard's just about to nod off, actually. Come on, <laughs> get with the programme. Come on, here we... We're going to talk about... I want to talk about tennis in Luxembourg. I want to talk about Luxembourg for a moment because when I think of Luxembourg, I don't know terribly much about the country. I'm sure you get that a lot. But I also think of, like, in terms of the hierarchy of tennis players, you're right up there, of course. But then I think on the women's side, we talk about players who have come from Luxembourg. There are two big female tennis players, Mandy Manella and Anne Krimmer, were the, uh, the two from Luxembourg, and you as the third one. Tell us about tennis in Luxembourg. How big is it? You're forgetting one. It was Claudine Shallow, so she used to be ranked 40 like a couple of years ago, and she didn't play for very long. But um, yeah, I don't know. Tennis. Um, I think we had um, a great generation now in in the last uh, 10, 20 years. But um, unfortunately, there's not really many players who were following. Um, we have one girl who's doing very well uh, at the moment in the juniors. Uh, she played the quarterfinals at the French Open this year. She uh, at one point she was in the top 10 um, in, in the rankings in the juniors. We have a few guys in, 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 the, in the United States that are playing college tennis. But overall, to be honest, um, we would have expected a little bit more because, uh, like we said, we had, we had good generations there. 
we had great success in Davies Cup at one point, um, a good Fed Cup team, and, and um, unfortunately nobody, nobody really followed on that. Well, let's, uh, Richard, have you been to Luxembourg before? I'm not sure. I may have driven through Luxembourg I once. I mean, I, I would imagine so. It's a bit like the town where I come from. It's kind of not the kind of place you necessarily think of as a, as a destination. How many people live in Luxembourg? I think right now it's just over 600,000. Right. So here in London, there are 10, 11 million people. So the, the population of Luxembourg is way under 10% of even London. So what are you doing producing tennis players of the quality of you? I mean, how are you having a Davis Cup team that can compete? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we were just lucky also to have that many players at the same time because, uh, I mean, tennis is definitely not a, a sport that is very popular in Luxembourg. Um, I think our most popular sport is um, cycling. We're very big in cycling. Skiing, um, maybe? Some good skiers? The only skier we had, he was not actually Luxembourgish. He was Austrian, but he had a fight with his federation, so he chose to, to, <laughs> okay. to ski for Luxembourg. But, but um, no, cycling is the, the... I mean, there's a big tradition in cycling. We have, like, um, um, I, I think they're going to kill me if, I, if I'm not sure about it, but I think it's, like, three or four different Tour de France winners. In the past, um, the Schleck brothers, you probably know them, yeah. very famous. And, um, yeah, football is obviously very popular even though we're not the best, but um, football is like in every country in Europe, very popular. But give us a sense of Luxembourg, the country. We might do a little bit of a travelogue because as, as you said, you get a lot, the fact that people just drive through it because it is quite a, a small place. But if people like Naomi, for example, wanted to sort of travel to Luxembourg, what would you recommend? What the, would be the itinerary that they would take? Even though it's very small, um, we have a lot of diversity in Luxembourg. Um, we have the, the capital, Luxembourg City, which is honestly very beautiful. I mean, I, I'm, I got to discover the, 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 the city a couple of years ago for the first time when I was injured because I used to be away for the summers always to tournaments. And um, a couple of years ago when I had my first injury, I kind of discovered the city and I, I get to see how beautiful it was. It was actually built on a fortress. And, and you can still see some part of the fortress, like the walls and everything, the, the secret ways to get into the fortress. Um, it, it's pretty amazing and it's, it's really beautiful. So I would definitely make a stop at the capital. And again, it's not very big, so you don't need like a week to, 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 to see everything. <laughs> <laughs> then we have the, the side of the, the Mosel, which is a, a river where they make very good wine and uh, very, very nice landscapes also there. You have the north of the country where there's a few mountains here and there, very old castles also to, to see. And then the south of the country, which is very nice because that's where I come from. But that's like the, the, the workers part. We used to produce a lot of steel back in the 60s and 70s. And um, you see the old uh, big fabrics uh, there. It's, it's very nice. It, it's, it's beautiful. So, Naomi, is that one you over? to sort of going down to visit Luxembourg or, or stopping by it in the off-season? Yes, well, I've got some time, haven't I, off-season? I've got, I, I like the idea of wine and mountains. Okay. That's right but up my street. I want to know when you talk about the north and the south of the country. <laughs> to me, you see, that, 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 that sounds like a great expanse. I mean, if, in Peter's terms, north and the south of Australia, you know, you'd be you, you know, driving for days to get between the two. But here, we're talking about a distance of how far between the north and the south. We're talking about maximum 100 kilometers. <laughs> no, it's very small, definitely. But it's still nice to see that, the, I mean, even in the north, they, they speak, um, I mean, we speak Luxembourgish. Not many people know that also. It's um, when people ask me, what, what do you speak with Luxembourgish? Is that, is that a language? That's what they ask me. And I, I looked it up because I wasn't sure either. But it's actually a language. It's not a <laughs> you language. speak it, but you had to look up to see whether it existed. 
No, because I thought it was a dialect because it's very close to German, to, right. to Flemish, and, and so I thought maybe it was a dialect or something, but it's actually a language. So uh, we, we have our own language, and in the north, when they speak, I don't understand it really. So uh, even though we're so small, dialect. yeah, then it's dialects in between Luxembourgish language, but I, I don't understand everything they say. So on Luxembourg TV, yeah. what, language, what language are they broadcasting in? Luxembourgish. But we all speak German and French there, so there's much in French also, a little bit like the, the, the papers, the newspapers, they're in French or in German. There's no newspaper in, in Luxembourgish. Da daily newspaper. There's maybe a newspaper here and there that, that comes out every month or so, which is maybe in Luxembourgish. kind of similar to Swiss German, am I right in saying that's a spoken language? And not a written language, am I right about that? You're not, you you're not so sure. I'm not so sure yeah, now. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm looking I'm bad now. I'm sure I'm right about that because we, we always ask, the guys from the ATP always ask Roger Federer questions specifically in Swiss German mm -hmm. after his matches as well as English. Mm -hmm. But I'm sh pretty sure speaking to a journalist at Wimbledon last year, it is, it's the spoken tongue and not written. Anyway. I'm you know who? No, Chris Bowers will be able to tell us about that because he's Mr. Roger Federer, really. Oh, I feel I feel bad. This has turned into like the the challenge, Chris. It's the, it's yeah. the challenge, Gilles. <laughs> yeah. Expert subject is Luxembourg. Yeah, I told you. I told you this would be something different yeah. working with me on this. Yeah. Well, I have one more thing. What you should definitely do when you're in Luxembourg, you should you should stop for gas. It's cheaper than every other country in Europe. Is is this a tax thing? Because I mean, Luxembourg <laughs> is known as like a big banking capital, isn't it? A big financial capital, and I think a lot of companies have their of their organizations based in Luxembourg, and that must be a big puller in of yeah. you know, people and resource for Luxembourg. Uh, you're right, and actually we had a lot of, tr a lot of problems there over the last few um, years because uh, they, they, the, the European Union may put like sanctions on Luxembourg because they, they said there was like uh, rulings, tax rulings in here and there, and, and it was not a nice moment for Luxembourg. But the new government now, over the last few years, they did a very good job on, 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 on going the right path and, 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 and making these things better now. What was your favourite part about being on the ATP tour? If you had to sort of isolate it to one, or your favourite thing about the grind and the travel and the playing and all of that sort of stuff, what did you enjoy the most? I mean, the nicest things was obviously when you realise when you realise you're part of it. I mean, when I was a kid, I was watching those guys on TV: uh, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, uh, Marat Safin, and then all of a sudden being able to 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 see those guys, <laughs> practice with them, play matches against them talk to them uh, I, I, that's the nicest moment so what do you so what do you tell your boys so your boys will be growing up and they might come into sporting pursuits or whatever but in terms of your life lessons what you've learned from all your years on the tour and they come up and they say dad what you know what can you tell us about life from you playing week in week out and having you know the fact that you, you lose and all that sort of stuff what would you tell them well I think if if there's one thing I learned um, from my tennis career is that when you believe in yourself, you can get anywhere you want. And I, I wish I've, I would have believed more in myself in the beginning of my career. And um, for example, my oldest son now, he's um, seven years old and he tells me he wants to be number one in tennis. And I tell him, look, it's very difficult, but if you work really hard, if, if you really want it and you do everything for it, you, you can reach that goal. Because I think it's, it's, it's all about that. It's all about believing in yourself. I mean, one of the best examples to me is Sasha Zverev. Um, I used to um, play against his brother when, when a couple of years back when, when Sasha was not playing on the tour. He was like a little guy, 12, 13, 14 years old, but you could see already that he was so sure about himself, that he believed in himself, that he knew he was going to be a good player. And, and today we see where he, where he is now. 
Yeah, well, he's got to learn to wear socks with his shoes, but that's another story, Richard. Do you, do you think you're born with that, that inner sense of self-belief that Sasha Zverev has, or do you think you learn it? I think it's part of education. I think it's what your, what your parents tell you, what your coaches, what your environment tells you. And um, I have to say, coming from Luxembourg, the environment is not perfect for, for an athlete because we always hide behind the fact that we're a small country and that it's very tough to, to, to be a top athlete in whatever sport. And um, so I think I was uh, affected a little bit by that. And, and um, I think it's part of your education. What happened to change for you? What, when you came out on tour and you didn't believe, was there what flicked the switch? Well, I think you get older, you, you, uh, you gain more experience. And I think for me, one of the turning points was when I started to work with a sports, sports psychologist. And um, when, yeah, when we worked on that stuff, it's just, uh, it's, you, you can work your head also. I mean, you, you, you spend a lot of time in the gym or running or whatever. You, you, you strengthen your legs, you strengthen your arms, whatever. But um, yeah, people forget to strengthen their head as well. <laughs> so how, how did you deal with a loss, particularly a tight loss, like, you know, a real heartbreaker where it's, it's impossible not to be really affected by it, especially when you've played really, really well and maybe just been pipped to the post. How, how did you deal with it? Well, early in my career, it was actually very easy. I mean, I was maybe disappointed or sad for, for one or two hours after the match, but then the next day, everything was fine already. And the older I got, the tougher it was to lose. I mean, if I look back now, probably one of the best, if not the best tournament I played in my life was uh, Wimbledon in uh, 2017 when I made the quarterfinals. But actually, after that, I kind of realized also how close I was to, to, to be able to play in a Grand Slam semi-final or maybe a Grand Slam final. And, and uh, I think even though that was my best result in a long time, only my second quarterfinal in Grand Slam. I, I, looking back now, I, th I feel like um, I missed one of the biggest chances of my life. I'm intrigued though now. You say that as if you still feel that that's the case. Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah, yeah. Do you, did you know? Did you know at the time that that was probably the biggest opportunity you were going to get? Because. I suppose because it was later on in your career. I mean, you don't when want when that thought coming in your mind, do you? it's just no, going to get in the way of no, it. But, but, it? No, but you can't. But you can't help it, right? Because when you're young, no matter what you achieve, you always think you're going to achieve more. And then uh, when you do get those those really big opportunities, because now I look back on, on my career and and the big opportunity, and, and and I actually look at it and I think I knew, I knew that that was. I mean, to get another, even plugging away for another five years to get an opportunity like that in that position, uh, you know, that that's it's pretty unlikely. Not at that time. When I was playing there, I felt so good. I mean, I felt like I was uh, just flying over the court and, and invincible, basically. But um, then when, when, when I felt that my, my injury was coming back at the end of last year, and I kind of felt like, okay, this could be tough now. Then I, then I looked back and I said, Jesus, this, this, could have been the, this could have been the moment too. I mean, I, I lost a five-set match against, against Marin Cilic in, in the quarterfinals. Uh, he made it to the finals after. I would have played Sam Query, who, who played unbelievably well also back then but I just beat him a couple of weeks early on in Queen's Club so I thought I had a good chance also to to make the finals against Roger Federer and, and, and looking back at that after a couple of months um, that really hurt to be honest even though I had the best year of my life I won two titles uh, but um, still it hurt a lot do you um, do you remember kind of all of your matches and all of the stages of your matches or there's been a lot of matches right or uh, do you just remember the big ones or I don't know like yeah. overall, or just uh, overall in your career yeah. but also I'll tack on to the to the end of that question 
um, your favourite players to play against. So talking about memories of matches, but then also particular players that you enjoyed playing against. Enjoy playing against. I mean, obviously, I enjoy playing on 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 the big courts. Um, many times when you rank like around 40, 50 in the world, you play on the back court somewhere. So yeah, the the best memories I had was when I played on on, on the big stage. But uh, to be honest, many times when I played on the big stage, I played against one of the top guys and. Uh, I got a bit uh, my, my my butt kicked, <laughs> so it wasn't it was. That's see, that's one of my biggest pet hates as well at the big tournaments. People don't realise the level of, of, of guys and, and the women ranked 70, 80, 90 because those who only watch the main courts only ever see them when they're playing against Roger and Rafa and and all the big players, and they tend to be getting their butt kicked. You didn't always get your butt kicked as well. So we've talked about your big matches, so you know you you, you weren't necessarily in that bracket. But I think some people don't understand actually on the outside courts some of these matches are incredibly good such a high level because you get it's all about matchups right but when you're matching up against Roger Federer on grass at Wimbledon and you're ranked 70 it's pr it's pretty tough and then people can kind of look at that and think that the level is is lower than it actually is and the best time to check it out I think and and I'm sure a lot of folks agree qualifying because you've got players who are ranked 105 plus who are playing for their livelihoods playing for their careers and the standard of tennis when they've got you know, a lot on the line is just extraordinary. Most of the slams have either a small entrance fee or it's free to get in and to watch it. So if you do get a chance at the majors or even at ATP tour level to see the qualifying, because as you well know, the, the qualification of people who are coming up, people who are going down, is just incredible when you get that mixed together and so much riding on it. Oh, definitely. I mean, even even if you, if you go uh, watch some matches in, in the lower level challenges, the level is so high. I mean... Um, when I, when I had my injury for five years ago and, and I just made it into the top 100 back uh, just before and um, I wasn't sure to be able to be, to, to be coming back because uh, when I started playing again at the challenger level, I mean, I, there were some tough matches there and, and players that you think, wow, how is, it, how is it that this guy is not ranked 50 in the world? I mean, that, the level is unbelievably high in all those tournaments and, and uh, I'm always saying like in between like 20 or, or and, and 150, anything can happen. You maybe have like the top guys who are from a different planet, but uh, other than that, I mean, the, the level is so close and, and, and it's, it's sometimes just a little point here, a little point there, which makes a difference. Now, we're going to let you get on a plane shortly. It's, it's a short but sweet time that you've been uh, joining us here on ATP Tennis Radio and doing the TV stuff. We haven't scared you off. Has this, has this been a good experience doing all this sort of thing? It's been great. <laughs> I know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun with you guys and uh, I hope to do some more in the future. Even working with Naomi? Even, even with Naomi. <laughs> really? Okay. Um, well, that's one. One in the column. Well done. Uh, well done to you, Jill. It's been lovely to, to meet you, obviously, uh, today and across the last couple of days as you sort of transition into another phase of uh, your career and your life and that you're still going to be hopefully involved with uh, tennis as well because it would be a shame to lose that. Um, safe flight home. And uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk at various stages of various tournaments throughout the next year. Yeah, definitely. I look, I'm looking forward to that. And maybe you get a chance to visit Luxembourg. Yeah. So there you have it. If you haven't sorted your holiday yet for 2019, take a look at Luxembourg. Our thanks to Gilles Muller for being such a good sport. You can expect to hear more from Gilles on both Tennis TV and ATP Tennis Radio in 2019. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Get in touch on Twitter at ATP Tennis Radio or simply tell a friend about the podcast. Join us next week when we begin our look back on 2018 with our favourite interviews from each of the Masters 1000s, starting with Indian Wells. 
I won't give too much away. But Boris Becker may just feature. I'm Seb Lozier. You've been listening to ATP Tennis Radio.